This is Hearts of Oak Podcast. Free speech, religious disagreement, children's rights, and open and free discussion on any topic are bedrock to a democratic free society, and we seek to promote and champion these basic rights. Join us. Let's keep the conversation going. I am delighted to have someone who I have seen on War Room many times reporting from Davos on the WEF on many of those areas, and that is Noor Bin Laden. Noor, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me, Peter. I'm glad we're finally doing this episode together. <laughs> we are. And all thanks to Richard Poe, who I think it was three times, I don't know, you do marathon uh, episodes with Richard Poe, but thanks to Richard for connecting us. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Richard is one of my my dearest, dearest friends and uh, some somewhat of a mentor to me. And I learned a lot uh with Richard uh, about U.S. history in particular and globalism in general. So we've had a wonderful uh, collaborative relationship, and uh, this is the connection for why I'm here today, and I'm very grateful. It's awesome. And his kayaking videos are something completely out, which you love that I've touched on that with a viewer. Um, obviously, people can find you, Nor Bin Laden, on, uh, on Twitter. Or an X. I'm old enough, so I'll stick with Twitter. Um, <laughs> what are the X? What? Um, and of course, your Substack, which we'll get on a little bit later, and that's at norbinladen.substack.com. All the links are in the description for all of you watching or listening to any of the podcasting app. So everything is there. Um, but Nor, maybe we can start on you and then go on to. I think your first and last Substack articles work together perfectly. And I would really encourage everyone to delve into that. And Substack has become one of the new mediums for free speech, which you start out on your first Substack about and all about um, freedom to speak, information, restrictions, um, digital ID restrictions, um, and a huge area um, on what we have faced um, and of course, we're all misinformation maestros, and that's what we're called. But before we get on to that, start with you and your journey, I think from growing up with uh, your surname, which is obviously infamous, Bin Laden, to reporting for, and I quote, and this has just come out in the Sun newspaper, British newspaper, reporting for Steve Bannon, who they talked about at CPAC which I'm so jealous I'm not there, but a, a rock star reception and the phil philosophical mastermind behind the MAGA movement. And that's how Steve is regarded here in the UK um, as a key person. But that journey from your surname, Bill Laden, to maybe an unusual place, you reporting for the war room over in Davos, which is the first time I saw you. Tell us about that journey. Um, it hasn't been boring. Let's put it that way. <laughs> it hasn't been boring. Um, uh, where to start? I mean, um, yes, my last name is Bin Laden. Yes, it is uh, an infamous last name, uh, but I was born with it. Uh, it's the name I've always carried. I've always had. And, um, and I was 14 years old when the tragedy of 9-11 happened. And uh, as anyone who can remember the horrors of that day, uh, I think it's fair to say that it changed all of our lives. Um, 
uh, and change the world. And uh, obviously, I'll include myself in that, uh, especially as someone who loves the United States of America dearly, even before that strange layer of being connected to um, to this tragedy uh, emerged. Uh, I just remember this sheer devastation I felt in front of my television. Uh, at that point, you know, the United States of America really felt like my second home after Switzerland. Uh, I grew up uh, traveling extensively from the age of from the age of three onwards, two to three times a year, and I felt deeply connected to uh, the country. And um, and so it just, uh, I mean, the tragedy was just so horrendous. Um, and watching this unfold uh, was heartbreaking, truly. And uh, then um, I, uh, I, in the next few hours, obviously the name started circulating and then it was all over the news. And um, uh, we were the only... Bin Laden's with a listed phone number in the telephone book in Switzerland. So for a few weeks, uh, we had uh, basically all the media, news, death threats, um, hate calls um, coming our way. Um, and uh, I mean, at least I was in Switzerland. You know, my mom is Swiss. I was born and raised in Switzerland. Switzerland is my home and my country uh, by heritage as well. Um, and uh, it's very strange because even though I was quite young, um, even at that time and all of this world whirlwind was going on, my thought was really with the victims. And um, ever since that day, I've never viewed, I never viewed myself as someone who had to go through something or I never viewed myself as a victim because I had, I think, at 14 years old, the maturity to understand that this was obviously not the same thing as being on the ground, losing either your life or loved ones. You see what I mean? So that's something, a sentiment that I've carried since that day. Uh, that being said, um, objectively speaking, and it feels like I'm talking a little bit about somebody else, but objectively speaking, obviously you're 14 years old and something of this magnitude affects you and um, participates in the creation of your identity because it's, you know, your last name is a big part of who you are, etc. But it, it, it would be a lie to say that it doesn't define me. It, it like everybody's last name and their heritage define that defines them. But I'm that's not all that I am, and so I haven't let that dictate what I do or who I want. I didn't let it dictate who I wanted to become. And there are many episodes we could uh, discuss uh, throughout my journey. But fast forward to September 2020 when I decided to um, publicly come out. Well, in fact, I had decided a bit before, maybe 18 months or a couple of years before, but I wanted to do things in a proper manner. And I was on my own. I didn't have people advising me or anything like that. And I just wanted to make sure I was aligned and prepared. I just knew I wanted to do it before the 2020 elections because I wanted to um, support uh, President Trump for the re-election. But it brings me to the point of September 2020 when I did come out and 
the reason being that I knew that I would have an immediate platform simply because of the name that I carry. And I felt a sense of duty to add my voice to the many, many people who were out there fighting for the truth to get out. Uh, this was a few months um, after uh, the pandemic, you know, emerged on the scene. And, um, and I didn't know exactly what would happen. I knew I would have, again, this immediate platform just because of my name, but I knew I wanted to lend my voice and however much I could, I wanted to contribute at this moment in time of history to uh, participate in, in, again, fighting for the truth. And uh, I wouldn't have been able to live with myself if I hadn't um, decided, if I hadn't spoken out, uh, basically. So that's sort of like the journey in in a, in a gist. But uh, can I can I ask you because I I I know you speak about what is happening, and you become a a, a spokesperson for what freedom means. Uh, and that's what you've highlighted. But uh, I'm also a curious person. So let me just one thing, and then I want to ask about how you end up on on War Room because um, I've been hugely blessed to be on there so many times um, and to get to meet uh, Steve. And when you see someone from afar, and then you get to meet someone face to face and up close, and um, and you begin to learn from them, uh, and you, I guess, you get to meet your your heroes. But I mean, growing up, because obviously at 14, uh, I was 24, remember, in Belfast, uh, watching it on the screen of one of the shops, uh, one of the TVs in one of the shops in the center of Belfast. Um, and it does define, I guess, where we all were at that point uh, and it sticks in our memory. Um, but then your struggle of, I guess, as a 14-year-old, you're you're still putting yourself together. You're still putting your your worldview together. You're trying to understand who you are as a person. Um, and my older boy is not much older than that. So uh, I see that on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, how, I mean, how did you kind of put your world together? Because you've got all these struggles of, kind of maybe who I am, how do I fit in? And that obviously leads up to um, Letter to America, which we'll touch on and, and being a war room. But kind of how did you manage to i guess build yourself and decide what you personally as nor saw as your outlook your viewpoint um i think i was blessed um because since quite early in my childhood i had quite a strong character i wasn't so influenced by peer pressure uh, and things like that i was I mean, I was I was very much into my sports. Um, I used to be uh, kind of like a star athlete of my school. I went to one of these private schools in Switzerland where we have so many different extracurricular activities. I remember at six years old, I had started the youngest uh, girls soccer team and had quite, you know, um, a character where, where I was quite entrepreneurial and wanted to lead projects of things that I was passionate about. And sports was definitely a huge part of my childhood. And aside from that, I also remember being very comfortable around adults, much more than with um, people my age. I loved uh, sitting in on dinners, you know, with um, my my mom and uh, and her group of friends. I 
So I got along with people my age, you know, as a child, but I also had this side of me where I felt I was maybe more mature than children my age. So that played a part of it. And also um, the reaction of the people in my school, you know, I had been in that same school since the age of three years old. So I was very well known by the teachers, the director, um, the various uh, students at different ages, because my older sisters had been at that school as well. So I was quite well implemented in that environment. And I remember, you know, every year the school would organize something called International Day, where all the students came with their national costumes. And uh, I'm not American. I wasn't born in the U.S. My eldest sister was born in the U.S., so she's got the passport and the nationality. I don't. I'm sure you're jealous. (laughs) (laughs) A little. But who knows what life I can bring in the future. But. even though I wasn't, I'm not a U.S. national, at International Day, I would come with my U.S. flag, you know, so this is pre-9-11. And so I was often teased as well for being so pro-American in school. Um, But it was, you know, it was innocent. It was nice teasing, but I was known for being very much an Americanophile as a child. And so, I mean, it was the year before it was, I think these international days took place in like May or June. So May, June, 2001, I was actually in school um, with my U.S. flag. And uh, then the summer, um, the summer uh, break took place. I remember I went to a sports camp in Maine, in the U.S. in in July. And then I was back in school on the 10th of Monday, 10th of September, and then um, Tuesday, 11th of September, the uh, the attacks um, were perpetrated in the U.S., and I went to school the next day. And people came to me to ask if I was doing all right, and not, I mean, probably some of them was because of the media frenzy that had already started, uh, no doubt, but many of them, um, many of the people who asked me how I was feeling was because they knew that emotionally I was very, very attached to the United States, and I could feel that that um, uh, that that was the the reason why they were asking me if I was if I was doing okay because it was so well known throughout the school. Um, as I mentioned, I don't think I've ever talked about this in an interview before. <laughs> Uh, but, no, I will get onto the issues, but yeah. I'm curious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So no, it was, you know, it was um it was an interesting time. And uh as you can imagine, I've had a wide spectrum of different reactions throughout my life when people hear my last name from people laughing when I make a reservation for a restaurant or at the border uh or customs and things like that. It's uh but you know, I I I never tried to hide it. I never tried to um, pretend anything about it. It's just what it is. And um, I've said this many times before, each of us were dealt with a a hand of cards, you know, when we're born. And it's up to us to, to make something of that. And I think that's one of the many reasons why um, the American experiment and the 
uh, ideology and the philosophies behind the founding fathers and um, and what they set out to uh, build with the American model. That's one of the reasons why it resonates so strongly with me, you know, also because of my background, my understanding of how it how things are in other parts of the world, like the Middle East. So freedom was very much a central um, concept of my life because my life could have been very different had I grown up in a society like Saudi Arabia at the time, et cetera. So as a child, you know, also the divorce of my parents, which was very acrimonious and growing up in this environment, it, it participated as well. What I was explaining earlier about maybe my level of maturity uh, as a child, but all of this made me the person that I am and led me to really cherish and value um, the founding fathers, their legacy. And, um, and I think this is what transpires in my letter to America. This is really the message that I wanted to share with the world when I came out, because I'm, I think there's so many misconceptions about the United States of America, and there isn't a, a clear delimitation. Can you say that word in English? Yeah. Delimitation yep. between um, what was done in the name of America by a hijacked government, by a subverted government. Um, and uh, I think there has been very much an operation to... Um, to generate a lot of hate towards America across the world. And uh, you have to be able to dissociate the things that have been done in the name of America by a treasonous, a treasonous ruling caste that have, again, hijacked the government and what actually America is about and what the population uh truly is like and um there are so many different layers to all of this especially when you look in terms of the geopolitics and what has happened after world war ii where essentially we went from pax britannica to pax americana and then all of a sudden after world war ii the u.s was made you know the 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 army of the world to go fight all of these conflicts that had nothing to do with america and um, and this was properly engineered. I don't remember what was the initial point I wanted to make, but it's just there are so many things to be said in terms of how the country has been transformed into essentially this vassal state yeah. over the past 120 plus years. I mean, obviously the efforts have been ongoing ever since 1776, there was a non-acceptance of the independence of the United States of America from the get-go. And I think ever since that year, there have there has been a concerted effort to infiltrate mm. and undermine the United States from within. And um, uh, the British Empire tried militarily a couple of times in the 19th century, you know, the War of 1812 and then the Civil War, as Richard brilliantly explains in his, in his article, how the American, how the British, excuse me, how the British caused cause the American Civil War. 
it was essentially a, a economic war that was being waged. And uh, there were many other economic um, operations that were also going on throughout the 19th century, including um, trying to institute central banking in the U.S. And uh, they finally succeeded, as we know, in 1913 with uh, the Federal Reserve. But all of this to say, um, before, you know, we maybe dig into some of these things, uh, but just as an overview, I think, you know, I'm very much MAGA, you know, make America great again. I think that message is so important because it really goes beyond President Trump, although he is, you know, the face and the driver, and we owe him a great amount of debt for even putting this in these words and these terms of framing the actual war we're in the way he did. Um, he did a tremendous, um, it was a tremendous gift, not only to the U.S., uh, but to the world at large to understand who we're actually fighting, that globalism is what we're fighting. And so I'm 100% MAGA in that sense, but I also like to say I'm 100% Maya, you know, make America independent again, mm -hmm. because all of this is about the independence of America that was never accepted and that unfortunately is not really existing anymore. It's, or at least it's like in the last, it's in the last shreds of independence that the U S has, uh, are being completely destroyed as we speak. And that's the goal of the globalists. Uh, oh, I agree completely. Reasons. And I'm just back from the state seeing Trump speak twice and getting the up, massive opportunity to meet him and get a picture and it's like wow um and there's nothing beats a, a trump rally and coming from a uk political point of view it's on a different level uh but guy so you do your letter to america that's probably um or 2020 i think march 2020 september uh, 2020 okay so you're um early 30s and then that leads you on I, I just love to hear people's war room story it's always fun there's so many contributors from war room who got to know so many people um and it becomes a connection of like-minded people that you can just ring in and catch up but then other letter to america you're kneeling your colors to the mass and i haven't looked back at all your 2010 2011 twitter posts i have no idea but that kind of you state um, what you believe in a call for America to re-understand what it means um, for that for that freedom, for that independence, for that liberty. Um, and then you later on, you end up in War Room. Um, how did that happen? Um, yes, so I quote came out uh, in September 2020 uh, with a interview with the New York Post and my letter to America. Um, that was really my my way of quote, bursting on the scene. And then I did a few things in the fall. My first ever television appearance was at 10 to 3 a.m. in the morning on Tucker Carlson tonight. Wow. And I can tell you the <laughs> level of nervousness was off the charts. I couldn't even see uh, Tucker because it was via Skype and the screen was blank, so I couldn't react off of his reactions. And then I was the last guest of the show and then it had to cut to um, Sean Hannity and Tucker was very gracious. He really let me finish my train of thought. He didn't even have time to do the, okay, now we go to Sean Hannity. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Um, 
And people reacted so kindly. They were like, you have to bring her back on. You need to have her on for a full hour, blah, blah, blah. So people were very, very kind in uh, uh, following that interview. But yeah, I remember this. And then uh, I did a few interviews. I did some more writing. I started my collaboration with um, Darren Beatty of Revolver News um, in January 2021. I was in I was here in Switzerland watching the events of January 6 unfold in front of my eyes, and I immediately knew that this wasn't an insurrection. It was an entrapment operation, and so I spent um, most of uh, the first half of 2021 writing um, about um, the Fed's direction. Which I'd actually never seen that term before, and I love it, Federation, which you use on your first Substack post. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and uh, with 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 Darren, I mean, Darren has done the proper, incredible investigative job yeah, yeah. Uh, with his team at Revolver that completely dismantled the entire narrative that they tried uh, to force down on the population. And it's such an incredible moment in history to witness this live because the federal government and the FBI have done many of these operations before. But this was the first time where, thanks to social media and different things and the reactivity of the, of the Revolver team, that they were able to dismantle the narrative before it properly congealed. And, um, and I mean, I have so much admiration for, for Darren Beatty and the team there, and also Julie Kelly, both journalists who have been relentless in their, in their coverage of this. and. Um, I remember I wrote my first piece. It was uh, January 19th, 2021, where I called it out for what it was like straight away um, and called out the slander operation that was going on against patriots and just MAGA in general. Uh, I remember it took me actually a week to write that article because I was so uh, upset about how more than half of the population of the United States was essentially being portrayed simply for being upstanding, patriotic uh, Americans. And um, and obviously not to mention the egregious human rights abuses that the January 6th defendants and political prisoners are facing. And so I also actually wrote to the, to the U- UN uh, Human Rights Council to denounce uh, what's going on with these political prisoners, and obviously there is no response, and nothing is going on uh, uh, on that front. But it needed to be in the record. I thought it needed to be uh, in the record, and obviously I know the UN is a total globalist construction, so I wasn't expecting anything from them. But it was just, you know, uh, there was this opportunity through this NGO to have that text submitted and recorded in the archives of the UN. And uh, so it was kind of like, okay, I'm going to use their avenues to have that in the, in the records of uh, the Human Rights Council of the UN. So anyway, uh, to answer your question, that was what I was really focus on, focusing on closely in 2021 um, and just uh, highlighting how the national security apparatus has been completely turned inwards against the American people after being built for over 20 years. I mean, obviously, this dates back to prior to 9-11. 
but we know what happened after 9/11 and the Patriot Act and all of and all of the apparatus, you know, DHS being created, etc. So how all of this was created in the name of fighting terrorism abroad, only to be then turned inward against quote domestic terrorists, um, has been so shocking to me. So uh, I was covering all of that, and then. Uh, I also did a little bit of an operation on Lake Geneva when the illegitimate President Biden came for the for the meeting with Putin, and uh, I protested on a boat on a lake, and it got some <laughs> views. And I was like, "Listen, you guys are coming to my hometown. I'm not gonna stay quiet here." And I wanted to make a point that. President Trump won yeah. in 2020. And so that was pretty fun. And uh, and then, yeah, I got the call um, to uh, come on the war room for the special 4th of July weekend, which uh, I was very uh, touched uh, to be invited for that specific weekend as a patriot at heart. And so I was able to, to share my message that there are millions, not just me, but we're millions of people across the world that support um, and want to see uh, the United States of America, the United States of America succeed. So that was essentially the message that I shared on my first appearance. And since then, it's been a pleasure um, going on the show. And uh, Steve is the best. Uh, I love, uh, I love uh, appearing, or I mean, our our collaboration. Uh, it's something I really enjoy. And so uh, I feel, I mean, I go on when I feel like I have something to say and, you know, being in Switzerland, which is kind of the administrative base of all the globalist entities. And we have so many events that happen here, even though my heart is very much in the U.S. There's a reason why I'm in my, still in my home country. It's because there's so many things going on. And so I report on the WEF in Davos, but also on the, um, World Health Organization that have regular meetings, but especially their big one in May, which is the World Health Assembly. And um, I'll be preparing uh, that as well because that's coming up in May and it's the big one because this is where they're supposedly um, going to sign this, quote, treaty, which isn't really a treaty. It's much more complicated than that. And this is something that I've learned with um, James Rogowski, who I interviewed recently on my podcast. And I know the conversation is is quite long. It's two hours, but it's really important to watch these two hours because James um, has the opportunity. I don't really interrupt him so much because I do believe that, you know, you should uh, let your guests speak, which you do as well. Yes. Thank you for <laughs> letting me speak. But so James really goes into it and lays down and breaks down exactly what's going on behind closed doors at the WHO. And uh, this is very much a trade dispute that's going on. They're not, you know, disagreeing on whether, you know, oh, are we going to lock down when there's the next pandemic? Are we going to, you know, put travel restrictions? Oh, do we really want these VAX passports? Now, that's not what they're disagreeing about, you know, what they're negotiating behind closed doors. It's about who gets what piece of the pie of this fear-based market that they've created with uh, the pharmaceutical companies. Um, and 
James does a much better job at explaining that than me. So I encourage people to listen to that conversation I have with him. And I also encourage you to interview him, uh, Peter, when you uh, get a chance, because it's it's information that really needs to be out there, especially since the WHO is one of the key vehicles of the globalists that is being used to push forward with their global governance agenda. And we are being distracted by so many things, so many things that are real, obviously, uh, but also so many things that aren't and that are just, you know, proper um, psyops. So all of this is going on, but we cannot lose sight of the WHO and uh, the progress they're making with their different legal instruments that they want to put in place so that we basically have to obey our governments and all these different quote stakeholders for the next round yeah and i will put that james uh link in the description and um i hope to get james rakowski on soon we'll see but um the, that is in the description encourage our viewers and listeners to make use of that uh, let me jump onto your Substack. um you start a Substack uh september 2023 and you'd said basically as a way of moving from your reliance on Twitter over um, to something different and fascinating post um, basically pointing out that what Musk is doing with Twitter or with X is not what you think and and calling that out um, for, I mean, in it, you've said, and I know many people have thought that uh, he is the he is the savior. Come to save us all and make free speech. Um, and no, but usable platforms are available. But no, but one of the lines was for the past few years, Twitter has been my chief mode of communication. I enjoyed posting there. It worked well for short missives, threads, and retweets. Despite the heavy shadowing, Twitter was simply the best vehicle for information sharing. Nonetheless, the heavy hand of censorship was always on your shoulder, um, and things to go a turn for the worse following the mass purge post-fed surrection, which the first time I saw that beautiful word. Um, tell us about that, because this whole concept of freedom of conversation, dissemination of information online, um, mm-hmm. this has been curtailed on a, on a scale which probably haven't seen since the beginning of the internet. And I know in Europe, in the UK, we've got legislation just passed that will massively shut that down. And I think those in the US don't realize what is coming their way. But tell us about Substack going on that um, and calling out Twitter not as a platform for free speech, but something more sinister. Um, yes, that's precisely the reason why I started the Substack is because I realized quite early on that um things were going to take a turn for the worse with uh, Elon uh, being uh, placed as the owner of this platform uh, for several reasons. Well, first of all, I was never on the Musk train or I was never championing Elon Musk. And this is also something that I appreciated with with Steve uh, because he also saw this uh, very clearly from the start and also another contributor to War Room who I really appreciate is Joe Allen. Who oh, he was also, our guest last week. I've got yeah. to know Joe. He's phenomenal. He's phenomenal. I and Doc Eon is so, such a good book. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to interview him soon uh, on the book, actually, because everybody needs to be reading this book to understand where society is going. It's so important. And he wrote it 
perfectly and at the perfect moment. So I can't recommend this enough. And, um, and so I was never on the Trump train because there are many reasons actually, but the first one I'll say, which is the obvious one, I think electric vehicles are a total scam and are 100% part of the globalist um, agenda, 2030 agenda that they're trying to uh, push down our throats. And he is the leading person um, that was placed, you know, to drive this this uh, fashion, you know, or this trend of electric vehicles. And he's the owner uh, or part owner of, you know, the number one leading company of EVs. Um, and then you add to that the fact that he's a bona fide transhumanist, mm. um, as Joe reports on, and um, a technocrat. People don't know this. I learned it from James Corbett, who is one of my sources, uh, or one of my, you know, one of I, I educate myself a lot with James Corbett's work, and uh, he did a one-hour video on who is Elon Musk, and uh, it transpires that his grandfather was the founder of the technocratic movement of Canada. So this like goes deep into his into his family, and there are other anecdotes like this that are very interesting in terms of the background. And then just you know, common sense in the sense that we know that Twitter is part of the apparatus. We know that it's you know, maybe it's not like Facebook, where Facebook is a direct product of DARPA. Maybe it came afterwards, but all of these tech platforms are enmeshed with the Intel community and Intel agencies and, and different departments of, uh, of the federal government. And so if Elon Musk was able to buy Twitter, it's that he was allowed to buy Twitter. And if he was allowed to buy Twitter, then he's he's a part of it. It maybe sounds a little bit reductive, but I, I don't think that the purchase would have gone through if someone was truly, if an independent billionaire had wanted to buy it. And then the last point I'll, I'll make is, okay, maybe he says some things that we want to hear, quote, on the right. And he says he's a free speech absolutist. But first of all, he's also said very contradictory things. He wants to turn X into the um, everything app. Uh, a la WeChat, uh, but just look, and then the the CEO he placed, the WEF-affiliated CEO, Linda Yaccarino, who uh, calls for freedom of speech, but not freedom of reach. And I mean, I'm not the only one, but my Twitter is so shadow banned. I mean, it's so frustrating. And um, and a more general point, and then, you know, people can read this in my post on Twitter, uh, Substack, which is much more clearly structured. I'm much better in written form, I think. Um, but, you know, and I put the clips and I put the references and I talk about also the legislation coming out of Europe, as you mentioned, which is uh, much more advanced in terms of um, censorship practices than in the U.S. because thanks to um, the First Amendment, the U.S., you know, still has that protection, even though it's hanging on by a thread. But the general point I'll make about Elon Musk is that you just have to look at all of his companies and in some way, shape or form, they are A, funded and part of the government apparatus. But second of all, they participate in 
um, building out this control grid, this globalist control grid uh, to which we will all be hooked. And this is the point I make in the last article that I wrote, how GovTech will control your life. Um, and I just mention it in passing, but, you know, SpaceX, Starlink, all these satellites that Elon Musk has launched into, um, you know, space or that level, that layer, the uh, just above the atmosphere. Um, uh, that is an integral part of deploying all the the connectivity and all the tech that will allow for the tracking, tracing, surveillance, and control of all of our movements and all of our transactions. And that doesn't happen without these these satellites that Elon Musk is is putting up there. Or completely. And uh, to me, at just Neuralink, which makes me question everything. But um, yeah. if that doesn't make you question everything, nothing will. Yeah. Um, you mentioned your latest post. Um, and I've I've enjoyed your post because I realized the work you put in. Um, as, as a content creator, I know the shortcuts. I know how easy it can be just to put text and simply to the, the screenshots, the information that's there. Um, and you. I realized looking at that, I think, well, Norris put a lot of work in that. So j- just on that, I'll I'll recommend it to our viewers. But your list one, yeah, how GovTech will control your life, a globalist plan to digitize society and trap you in the grid. And this kind of does very much is full circle on your first one, looking at the, the World Government Summit, uh, which when Joe was with us uh, 10 days ago or whatever, that we, we focused on that on the program. Um, and there yeah. are six aspects that they're looking at. And it's just been in, in Dubai, uh, mm-hmm. just been literally just been there. Um, and one of the six areas that they're looking at is government acceleration and transformation. And as always, you get a phrase or a title and you think that sounds good. Mm-hmm. But obviously in this article, you delve deeper and explain why you should be concerned. So, I mean, let, let's finish off with that and let people know what they will find on that latest substack, how GovTech will control your life. Yes, you just mentioned um, that uh, Joe was reporting on that very same event, uh, which was the um, uh, World Governments Summit. And uh, he focused on AI, which was a central, a central um, topic of conversation. Uh, at the conference, and it fits into the overall agenda, which is the one you mentioned, the acceleration and transformation of governments, which is what I focused on because AI is one of the tools that they will use to bring about this transformation and acceleration in the way that we are governed, we as the people are governed. And the whole point of the conference is essentially to um, compare notes of the different countries and the progress they are making um, towards the full digitization of their societies. And um, I put in different clips in there uh, of, um, of people who are explaining how things are going in their countries and how uh, close they are in terms of getting a fully digitized streamlined series of services uh, made available for the public and getting public adoption of of that system. But the goal is very much 
to digitize the entire way we live, you know, and it's, it's, it's been incremental so far in the West. You know, you go to the post office, uh, they make you scan a QR code to make you fill the customs if you're sending a parcel abroad. Um, my camera is broken, so I can't, uh, like the front camera is broken, so I can't do the QR code. And anyway, I don't want a QR, to use QR codes. I hate QR codes. And I said this actually on Steve's show uh, when I was reporting uh, on Davos a year ago. I said, I'm a human being not a QR code. And um, and they're going to make it impossible for people to function unless we have a smartphone and, and we connect to their digital, to their digital government platforms. And uh, we won't be able to get birth certificates or be able to apply for mortgages uh, to be able to apply for something as basic as your driver's license. All of these things are in the process of being fully digitized. And uh, and slowly but surely, it will be completely ubiquitous and we won't be able to function unless uh, unless we, we get on board. And uh, the time to say no to this is now because these plans are moving along faster than we think, as I wrote in my opening uh, sentence. And um, I think that's why this article is important, because we can look at the future in terms of 10, 20, 30 years. You know, Agenda 2030 is what, seven years away, six years away now. But this is tomorrow. This is happening now. And, um, and the other point I make is that while it seems like it's taking more time in the West, if you want to know what these societies will look like, you can look at countries like Ukraine, you can look at countries like Estonia. Estonia is like have 99% of their government services that are online now. It was kind of like the first test case or blueprint. Um, and uh, in fact, it was mentioned several times in the different panels at uh, Dubai la- in Dubai last week. Um, and... Um, and it's very much the model or the template, as is Ukraine right now. Ukraine is becoming the new uh, template for this digitized society. And I also talk about the Ukraine case and and how all of these countries that didn't have such entrenched bureaucracies because they came out of communism and had to rebuild everything, or Ukraine, which is you know being purposefully devastated uh, with the war, then now has quote an opportunity. You know, just like COVID was an opportunity for the Great Reset, uh, war is an opportunity for the digitization of society. COVID is an opportunity for the digitization of healthcare, i.e. vax passports, i.e. digital IDs. So it's all converging. They're using all these different different pretexts, as I write in the article, to bring us towards the adoption of digital IDs. And then... uh, we will have no more freedom at all. So I make the case that the time to opt out of this is now before it's too late. No, of course. And just last point, the only way out of it is, I think, education, because our institutions and governments have been 
extremely intelligent how they've done this under the radar. Um, talk to anyone, talk to anyone. What's the world government for? Zero idea. What's WF? Oh, it's a, it's a meeting up of world leaders. Literally, the public are unaware. And yeah. what you do, uh, what many people do is educate the public. And the, only by that will they waken up. Yeah, and I think that, you know, there are so many people whose work I admire, uh, who write about this and who have been writing about this, who have been writing extensively, for example, about um, the WEF and their simulation cyber polygon and how cyber attacks are going to be used to bring about uh, this new uh, digital uh, governance system. Um, and they go into tremendous detail. And I love reading these articles, you know, off the top of my head, you know, Whitney Webb has written about this, also James Corbett, and then this um, other independent journalist, Amazing Polly, has done videos on all of this, putting all the links together. Um, um, I hope with my piece on the Substack that it's kind of like a bridge where it's relatively accessible for people who are finding out about this for the first time, who have no idea that this is going on or who are completely oblivious to it. And, um, and you're right. The key here is education, because if you don't even know what is you know, going on, how are you even going to uh, attempt to fight it? So listen, we, we all try, you know, you, Peter, with your podcast, you know, everyone who is a content creator and especially an independent uh, content creator, it's all about trying to raise a maximum of awareness around us so that we can try and stop this uh, this globalist uh, power grab. And uh, to echo uh, Steve's sentiment uh, that he said at CPAC, you know, uh, this week, um, I do believe that we can have 50 years of MAGA ahead of us if we uh, if we get together and we and we fight this because it's either America first or it's globalism. And um, to also quote, you know, President Trump uh, at uh, one of his UN addresses, you know, the future belongs to patriots. The future does not belong to globalists. And uh, I want to you know, live and have uh, children. If I have children one day, grow up in a in a world where uh, we remain sovereign in terms of uh, or in uh, at an individual level and at a national level. I don't want to uh, to uh, live in a world that is controlled by a small, incredibly small minority of people that sit on top of a pyramid and basically control a grid. Uh, to which we're hooked up. This is not the future for humanity. I don't think it will be the future of humanity. I do believe we win in the end, but uh, until that system that they've built for over 200 years, uh, probably longer, until that system collapses, it's going to be quite quite tough. And uh, in order for it to to collapse, we're going to have to be, you know, the more people we are to fight this, the better, the more chances we have on our side. Yeah, well, this day we fight and this and every day. Nor, I really appreciate you coming out. I have um, love watching your your many pieces on War Room. Uh, really enjoy your sub stack. And thank you so much thank for you. coming on today and, and giving us your thoughts on that. Thank you so much for having me, uh, Peter. I hope we can do this again sometime. If you like what we do, sign up to our mailing list 
Donate, share, and subscribe to our many platforms at heartsofoak.org. Thank you for listening.